How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Ooh, that was a long one, Mark. Nice. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I wasn't used to that opening, so I wasn't where sure where to cue in. You know, I I, I know we sort of you know lost lost our sound for a moment there, Larry. But that's okay because here we are. We're back, and Mark, we're here. You here. You weren't here last week. What were you doing last week? No, I was on a trip of a lifetime last week. Yeah, that sounds good. What were you doing? Yeah. Can't tell you. Ah, good. That sounds like a good trip. That's why it's the trip of a lifetime. But Tom was here last week. Hello, Tom. Hello, Dr. Joe. And last week, we were talking about Zoom's 50th anniversary. Can you believe it? We had Chris Sarson on, we had Kenny on, we had Tommy on. And then Sunday night, it aired live. And now, if you want to watch the very first episode of Zoom, children's tv show from 1972 50 years ago you can actually watch it you go to wgbh.org backslash zoom 50 it takes you to a page you can click on it and you will see dr joe 50 years ago it's crazy it is crazy yeah yeah and we've been getting some great feedback from people all over, well, really all over the country, all over the world, who remember Zoom from all those years ago. It's amazing. So it was really fun. And then on the 26th, there's going to be an interview with six of the seven original first casts of Zoom, uh, moderated by David Camp, who wrote uh, Happy Days. And he was on our show uh, about a year or so ago. So that's going to be really fun on the 26th. So we'll be chatting about that a little bit next week, too. And you have a book coming out, too, don't you? I do. I do. In February, February. Unleashing the Power of Respect, the I Am Approach. And it will hopefully introduce people a little bit more to the I Am. It's a collection of stories of people that I've worked with, my patient teachers, and then change the perspective on the I Am. Because, you know, we, we pathologize people, we stigmatize people, we say that they are broken. And the I am is saying no one is broken. And I, that is such an important thing, especially for what we're going to be talking about tonight. Because the biological domain is real, but you change the environment of those cells, you change the response. And sometimes that response will not lead you down that path of success of the I am. Tom, can you please introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely. As a speaker, she has presented for the second annual Teaching Cannabis Awareness and Prevention Virtual Conference in 2021, Alcoholics and Substance Providers of New York State, Community Coalitions of Virginia, the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Solano County, and many other organizations. She is also a former actress with appearances on The West Wing, Disney's Bolt, and famously was the voice of Jill Valentine in the Resident Evil franchise. Woo! 
She is the co-author of the only fictional story which illustrates cannabis-induced psychosis, A Night in Jail. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Heidi Anderson Swan. Thank hey, you so well, much. Welcome, Heidi. It's so great to have you here. Thank you very wow. much. I have to make a correction in the introduction, though. I know IMDb says that I was with Bolt. I never had anything to do with Bolt. Oh, so they they so, screwed yeah. up. They screwed up the Bolt. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually people have been like, oh, wow, wow. They're very impressed with me. And because of that mistake, and it's a mistake. And so anyway, we're we're still pretty impressed, though. You know, it's pretty impressive uh, CV there. So tell us, tell us about your book, A Night in Jail. Where'd this come from? Well, um, my brother all right, I'll I'll start back. In back in the um, ni- late 1970s, early 80s, um, marijuana was uh, very commonly used by people of of, of all ages. In, where we grew up, my brother and I grew up in Washington State, and um, I was 12 when I started drinking alcohol and smoking pot and nobody told us that there was anything wrong with doing it it was just there and 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 we just did it and so one time um and I didn't do either one a whole lot by the way I was a very ambitious kid I was a very social kid I had you know a a lot going on in my life but that's just how normal it was that um, someone who was like involved in student government and, you know, I was a cheerleader and I got good grades, you know, that someone like that would still be drinking alcohol and smoking pot because that's everybody was just sort of doing it. And so one time I was um, getting high with uh, my best friend and all of a sudden I didn't know who she was Hmm. and I didn't know where I was. And then I'd remember, and then I'd forget. Now, mind you, we were in my house, the laundry room of my house. Mm. And here I was going in and out of, of reality, and it scared me so much. And this was back when the potency of marijuana was about 5%. So very, very, very low, especially by today's standards. And I didn't think much of it. Now, um, my friend was fine, but I was not. So it wasn't like it was laced with something else and we were both having this horrible experience. No, this was unique to me and she was fine. Um, And and I just didn't think much of it, but I really stayed away from it because it it just was not a good experience for me. So how old were you you when that was happening? Like 15, 16, maybe even 17. I, I really, I can't remember the exact. I just remember being in the laundry room and with a high school, my high school best friend. Right, um, okay. So I don't, I didn't like this um, experience. And it wasn't until just about 10 years ago that I found out there's a name for that. It's called cannabis-induced psychosis. And that's where a person loses touch with reality because of their use of marijuana. And I'm the perfect example of it because it never happened to me before that. It never happened to me again. It only happened that one time. And it was very scary. And like I said, it didn't happen to my friend. And what we found out is that 10 to 15% of the population is predisposed to psychosis. Most of us don't know it. 
and marijuana is an environmental risk factor to pull the trigger for it. And so even in small, small doses, someone who is predisposed can have a very negative experience like what I just had, or like what I just described. So my brother, um, he really liked the funhouse feeling that it gave him. He liked, you know, the losing touch with reality. And so he, he did it just a little bit every day through high school, through college, and graduate school. And then after he completed graduate school, he went on and he was like, oh, you know what? I did really well with marijuana all these years. I'll go ahead and try some cocaine. And so then he moved on to cocaine. And then after that, it was crack. And he fell in love with crack. And then right after that, not long, he was homeless and living under a bridge in Seattle, Washington. And he went to jail 18 times. Horrible 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 for our family how i mean how it's it's horrible to think of someone you love living outside in the rain literally in seattle under a bridge i mean it was it was devastating for our family and i can't imagine or no now i i can imagine what it was like for him it, to be him to live like that, it was it was awful. Um, so let me, let me stop you for a moment, though. Yeah. What about for your family? What about your yeah. your parents? What was it like for them? It was terrible. I mean, I mean, first of all, everybody's baffled. It's like what? What? What's he? What he's doing? What and uh, doing drugs all the time? This is the golden boy, you know. He was, super ambitious, really happy, handsome, lots of friends, always cared about his grades, always talking about what he wanted to do with his future. You know, he had a, our parents were good parents to us. You know, we had a loving home, a wonderful home. And, and he got a bit, we both got very good education. So, I mean, we were like, what is, is happening? And then the heartbreak and, and they tried, um, we all tried to, dissuade him from the life that he had chosen and uh, we ended up giving him an intervention and um you know that was really difficult you know we were crying for five hours with him reading letters to him begging pleading please give up drugs please come back to the family please come back to your life and he just he, and this is someone I mean, this was before everybody had cell phones. So it's amazing to me that we were able to get him, this person who was living with homelessness, out from the street and into a room with us. I mean, it's still really astounding. I mean, and he was of the streets. He was, I mean, like what you see outside with the long dirty hair and the long nails and he, his teeth had started to fall out and um you know the clothes were were filthy and he smelled really bad and it was just I mean you just it's just hard it is so painful for all of us my parents everyone it was it was it was extremely difficult um but so after five hours you know he said no he said no, and he went, walked out into the rain. And so it was, I mean, we were just devastated. 
uh, by this. You know, you see these intervention shows and like, and you go, oh, that's great. It's it, you know, or, or you see the film Beautiful Boy, you go, oh, the happy ending. And there's not always happy endings, you know, and we have to be honest with, with people about this. And so... Um, after after many agonizing years, and if any of you care to read the, the story about this, this section, which we don't have time to go into now, it's on the website, anightinjail.com, under uh, about the authors. And, um, and so- We will definitely, definitely take a look at that because it is so true that the interventions do not always work. Yeah. He, was, he was homeless on the streets for 10 years? Or in jail. Or in jail. In jail, yeah, and so the um, the deal breaker was he had um, been he had been arrested so many times that if he did one more time, if he got busted one more time, he was going to go to prison. And for him, no, <laughs> no, he's like jail is fine. You can get through jail, but I can't go to prison ever. No, and so that that stick really helped him with sobriety. And so he said, okay, I will, I will go into treatment instead of going to prison. How about that? You know, I'm not sure people understand the difference between jail and prison. Can you, can you help us with that? Well, he would say jail is just juvenile boot camp. <laughs> That's what he says. You, you, you're checked in, you're checked out. Now, prison is, uh, and, and I don't know that I'm, gonna, I'm the best person to ask about this, just that he didn't want to go there. He said, you, you get a... Um, you get a parole officer and they drug test you all the time once you get out and you're it's just locked away it's just a much more intense um, experience and then he said and if i um because we read we write about this in the book he said um i would have to check in with them and um once i got out of jail i couldn't live on the streets without using drugs or alcohol so I will get drug tested and I'll get sent back to prison and it'll just be an endless cycle. Um, I think that's, that's why he said he couldn't uh, deal with prison. But so after, after um, the intervention that we gave him, um, there was a, a few years that went by and I'm just going to cut to the chase. Um, the, the good news is that uh, we were able to get him off the streets and get him evaluated by a psychiatrist um, and, and the psychiatrist said, you know, he, he said, um, after the visit with the psychiatrist, he said, I told her things I've never told anyone. Hmm. And I said, oh, well, what did you tell her? And he said that I'd been hearing voices. And what? Very interesting. Yeah. And that he thought he was John the Baptist. And that he thought that the CIA was following him. And that he thought the only safe place that he could be where cameras weren't following him was underneath the freeway. Mm. What? <laughs> what? I mean, I was like, I had no idea. We, I, I don't think any of us in our family had any idea. We thought he was a drug addict. And we thought he was dealing drugs to feed his habit. And he was throwing his life away for that reason entirely. So... I was I was really surprised, and so he he our, our mother took him in, and she and she let him live with her, and uh, she fed him and helped him to you know get back on his feet, and he started going to twelve step meetings, and he was being treated and getting sober. I mean the whole thing, and and it was at that time um, that I first started to find articles that said teen marijuana use 
increases the risk for adult schizophrenia. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was like, why doesn't everybody know this? (laughs) Right. So, I mean, common knowledge. People need to know that because, listen, if, if, if you use once, your increase in risk goes from one to 1.2. You use more than 50 times, you have almost a seven times risk, seven times a risk of developing schizophrenia. People, people just don't think about it. No. Weed is safe, right? I mean, it's just weed. Yeah. Right? It's just weed is what people will say. It's legal. Wow. It's legal. That's right. It's legal. It's, 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 it's not addictive. It's, yeah, right. And, and none of those things are true. That is, that's the big myth, guys. Yeah. Weed is absolutely addictive, physiologically, not just psychologically. And it is a gateway. Mm-hmm. And your brother, sadly, uh, sadly showed us that. So what happens next? Then what happens? So I told him, and one of the things that his story illustrates is that it, um, just like the, you know, you were talking about the gateway, he was just, he said it, he was like, oh, all these years of marijuana went just fine. I go, I'll go ahead and try Coke. Right. You know, and, and they, they do, they mix, they mix now, especially today, poly drug use is the problem. It's not just that they're using marijuana, they're mixing it with Xanax or they're mixing it with meth or alcohol, the most common. And that is just so dangerous, especially when we're talking about uh, driving. You, I mean, they with cocaine and I mean, it just it just goes on and on. Um, so um, anyway, so I told my brother about this. Oh, oh the, here's what I want to say is that of all the illicit drugs that can cause a psychotic reaction, like what happened to me, um, the one that converts most often to schizophrenia, as you just described, Dr. Joe, is marijuana. And that's above hallucinogens, above meth, above cocaine, above alcohols, like way down on the list. You've got to abuse alcohol for many, many years before you know something like that happens. But marijuana is at the top for mental health problems. And people don't want to believe it, but that's what the studies say. And that's even with low potency marijuana, two to 8%, like what I used, like what my brother used. However, the stuff they're selling in the pot shop that you have in your community today is much stronger than that. It's several times stronger than that. The bud itself, like what you get in a joint is probably, I'm guessing, and I don't know about Massachusetts, but in California, it's around 20%. That's that's four times stronger than what I was using when I lost touch with reality. That's right. But it concentrates that what people are vaping and dabbing, the shatter, the wax, the oils, those are 10 to 20 times yeah. stronger. Yeah. Some of the concentrates can be 90% greater or 90% or more THC. People, right? people, right? People need to know that. There's THC, which is the psychoactive part, and there's the CBD part, which may actually have some medicinal properties. But if you look at what has happened to weed over the last 20 years or more, it's been hydroponically modified and genetically modified. So the CBD level has been absolutely static and remains low. And the THC, just like you're saying, Heidi, it's, it's astronomical. As I say, this, this ain't your grandfather's weed. That's what our Surgeon General said. 
Yes, our former Surgeon General. Yes. And so I, I told my brother about these studies. And, and mind you, this is I didn't know anything about the high-potency products. I'd only heard about these low-potency things. And so 10 to 15% of the population is predisposed. And that's a lot. That's a big number. I mean, when you think about how many people, what's the percentage of people who are predisposed to like that, have peanut allergies, it's 3% or less. And everybody knows what has peanuts in it. But 10 to 15% of the population is predisposed to psychosis and they could have a negative reaction with marijuana. And we're not telling people about it. It's not on the boxes. It's not on the billboards. That's, that's really irresponsible. Um, and so anyway, so I told my brother about the studies and I said, hey, did you have any idea? And he said, what? If I knew marijuana would do that, I never would have tried it. And I said, neither would I. And I said, do you want to write a book to warn teenagers about what we wish we knew when we were young? And he said, yes. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to him for, for doing this because he really, really lays his life out. So um, he's so honest and he's so bare about it. And so we wrote A Night in Jail and the plot is fiction because we wanted to give it some intrigue and have people go, oh, what's going on? Oh no, what's gonna happen, you know? And, um, but all the stories told are true. They are his stories. And so we just spent a lot of time talking on the phone and he gave me, he, he would tell me stories and I would take notes and I'd be like, just trying to imagine because the, the stories are, um, they're horrible and fascinating all at once. And to hear what his point of view was, for instance, that he thought he was John the Baptist, and that's why he was living outside. He thought he was doing God's will by living outside with the locusts. And so to get into that point of view, to understand what the thoughts are, you know, and get it down, it was um, a really interesting um, process. And, um, and he was, he was great. And so he would help me with um, well, why would this character do this? And he'd say, oh, it's obvious. He's doing it because X, Y, and Z. And I'd be like, oh, oh, okay. And and there we have it. And so yeah. that's the... And, and stories are such a powerful part of who we are. You know, we are a narrative species. So the so, process... Yeah, it took a while before we figured out what the plot of the story was, and um, oh, and would it be a nonfiction book or would it be a fiction book? And we landed on fiction um, to make it as interesting as possible. And so once um, we figured out the structure of the story, then we started um, writing the the chapters. And as I would write a chapter, I would read it to him aloud over the phone, and it was really funny because he's very funny. And so he would, I would say, you know, basically his words to him and he would laugh out loud. I mean, he would <laughs> laugh and laugh and laugh because the, as, as tragic as, as, as the story is, there's a lot of very funny parts to it. And, um, and that's, that's uh, due to him because he's funny. And so um, anyway, so that's how, how we would do it. And then if I was stuck somewhere, I'd say, what do you think? Why do you, why is this character doing it? He would say, oh, well, they're doing it because of X. And I'd be like, oh, all right. <laughs> Sounds good to me. And we just kept doing like that. So. 
what a catharsis as well, though. It must have, what an, an interesting experience to take all of this pain and sorrow and of your, your brother, the family effect, and, and then you create something. That is a remarkable, remarkable testimony to the resilience that he has as well. Remarkable. Yes. And, you know, um, in um, some, sometimes I talk about that in uh, presentations that I give is that this is, I like this as an example to kids. And this is what you do with drug story theater, which is you take something that's so awful in your life and you can make a song, you can write a monologue, you can write a book, you can do, you can paint something, you can make a dance, you can do all these creative things with this pain. And then it's reframed. You know, that pain that I was in, that my brother was in, we're, we're proud of this, you know, so it's, it's changed inside our hearts, inside our minds. I mean, the, the, um, the memories of the pain and the sadness about what happened are definitely still there, but they're softened and they're um, part of a different overall story. And so I, you know, I appreciate um, that he was willing to do that. And, and I appreciate that you do that. And Tom, I believe that's, that's what you do as well yeah they and and that's part of what the dr joe show is as well is we we want to highlight people like you heidi who are bringing this to the world thank you you that they are they're bringing this remarkable energy and in a time where we have so much anger uh, we're also about hope there is a lot of hope even even your brother was at an i am yeah. And that's that's the part is that was his current maximum potential that was who he is what was going on the influence of the four domains but what's fascinating by the story is how if we don't ask someone we won't be able to really know what the influence of those domains are and people aren't going to tell us if they fear they will be judged as less than and broken when they tell us their story so i'm so delighted to hear that your brother found a person psychiatrist who he could trust yeah with with that trust so much was revealed yes and he um he said that he he was just so surprised how kind uh, she was to him and he felt comfortable revealing this and so imagine if he hadn't been to someone like her Mm -hmm. And then maybe we would never have heard it, you know, and maybe he would have been um, not been given social security because that's the thing here. He is, he has social security disability, thank heavens. And it pays for the roof over his head. It pays for his food. And that's all he needs. That's all he wants is, you know, and he lives with a sober roommate and he goes to 12 step meetings and he passes on the message to people and he says that, you know, in back when the, in the days of a night in jail, he was always collecting, you know, trying to get money to do a drug deal, getting drug dealers, phone numbers. And now he's collecting phone numbers from people in 12 step meetings. And that's, you know, that's his joy now. And it's, um, it's, it's really wonderful yeah. to do that. Yeah. What, one of the phrases we have with drugstore theaters contribute to society to help with your sobriety because Uh, as you give 
to others, you increase your own value. And that, from a brain point of view, really feels better than getting high from drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. But your brother has more than that. So, so the, the weed may have been the trigger to set off the psychosis. Mm -hmm. um, so how is he managing the psychotic process now? Um, I think, well, he's, he's pretty, you know, he's, he's getting treated. So good. that's really good. And I think I would leave that for him to speak to, but I, I would, would say. Delighted um, if he did. Yeah. I'd love, love to hear him tell us. But go on. Yeah, he's sorry. A lot of fun. <laughs> he's a lot of fun. Um, but what, what's really, I think, uh, rare about him and valuable about him is he's able as a sober person today um, to look back and remember what he was thinking when he was in the throes of his illness and the throes of his addiction and his delusions, what he was thinking before all that as well, you know, what led, um, on, led him on this journey. And so, and I think that that is um, what makes the story intriguing for teens because they can identify with a lot of what he's saying. They go, oh, yeah, I know what it feels like to feel awkward around a girl and, and, and want to, you know, have a little something to make me feel less self-conscious. And I know what, it, you know, and, and th those are the kind of stories that, that, um, that are told. Um, why, why, how did he get started in the first place? How ambitious he was and how it's like the slow erosion of what, the potential of a person's life and it really happens um really quite slowly that a lot of people don't even notice it yeah and so what are you doing now with night in jail and and trying to get the word out how's heidi swan doing it we spoke a lot about your brother let's talk about heidi um well this is my passion and um, and as we discussed how uh, marijuana has changed, this um, alarms me greatly. Um, when we voted for Prop 64 here in California to legalize, I had no idea marijuana had changed since the 1980s. I thought we were legalizing the same marijuana that I was using, my brother was using, and I realized that it had a side effect for some people, and I thought, well, it it should still be legalized because, you know, for a variety of reasons. And, um, and so I did that. And my husband said, you know, you're voting to legalize this while you're writing a book about the harms of it. And I said, yes, yes, I am. And he's like, okay, all right. And, and then as I was just about finished with the book and it, it's a lot of work, as you know, you've written uh, two books now. No, I'm, this, my fifth book is coming out in uh, in February. So well, you're yeah. prolific. That's that's a lot of books. <laughs> it's a lot, and it's a lot of work. And mm -hmm. I was just getting uh, finishing with it, and I was so tired, and I really uh, just didn't want to. I, I was just tired, and um, and then I was talking to a friend of mine um, who works in prevention, and she said, "Well, you know, with these high potency products, these kids are really putting their brains at risk." And I said what are you talking about? And she said, oh, you, you know, you, you know, the, the stuff kids are dabbing and vaping, the concentrates. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so she had to describe to me these products that were four or five, 10 times stronger than what I thought we voted for. 
And I was like, are you, are you kidding me? And, and so she explained how the mental health problems are so much more acute with these strong products. And so it's not like a, a, a slow erosion of a life. It can be a fast erosion of a life. There are some people, tragically, who after just a couple of years using these ultra high potency products have terrible mental health effects, including bipolar disorder and increased risk to suicide. I mean, I, I have friends whose children have committed suicide because their psychosis was so severe. They were positive. I mean, and it's, it's similar things like the FBI is following me, the CIA is following me. And, and then a, a young person will do something horrible. I mean, and so this really galvanizes me because I understand what it is because it happened to me. But now I know it's much worse for young people. And I remember being young and I remember being dumb and thinking, it's not a big deal. It's okay. I'll, I'll be fine. You know, everybody else is doing it and go ahead. But for me, I couldn't afford to do that. And especially today, I imagine me in today's world taking a hit off of vape. That's right. 10 times stronger than, you know, I would probably be in the emergency room, you know, with hallucinations and paranoia and, and other things. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you had that experience in the long term. I'm just going to change one word, Heidi. I hope you don't mind. I don't think adolescents are dumb. They're, they're, oh. they're, they're, they're not dumb. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, part of their brain, however, is not developed. Yeah. And that's the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's responsible for thinking, rational thought, being able to make a plan, execute a plan and anticipate what will happen next. So that's the prefrontal cortex. The adolescent brain is limbic. It is emotional, irrational, impulsive. What do adolescents want? They want to feel pleasure, take risks, and be social. Man, is that a setup for addiction or what? Feel pleasure, take risks, and be social. So for us here in Massachusetts, it was 2016. And we voted to make marijuana legal. I did not vote in favor of it, either in Marshfield or in our state ballot. But for me, as I look back on it, it's as if a whole group of adults just stopped using their prefrontal cortex and stopped thinking, what will happen next if we do this now? What's the message we're sending to our children when we legalize marijuana mm-hmm. and man we got so much pushback yeah. mark what do you what do you think about yeah. this because you you've worked with me for a while with drugs free theater you too tom What's you know I, I think it's actually i think it's fascinating um how an industry can pull the wool over uh the eyes of society so easily and and we accept it you know uh the cigarette industry did it for years and shame on them huge billion dollar settlements for lying to us. And, and now we're sitting here watching it happen all over again and do, with, with a much more serious effect. With weed and what's just happened with, with prescription pain medicines, right? right. With the oxycontin, I mean, that whole thing, yep. It's remarkable how susceptible we are to certain things. So what do we do now, Heidi? First, tell people how they get the book, where they can go, how do we get it? Thank you for asking. It can be purchased at Amazon. 
a night in jail um, and uh, go to the website a night in jail.com because there's lots and lots of things to read. Um, uh, there are short, and if you look under menu item research, there are um, short articles and videos and studies um, and also websites that um, are some, you know, have similar information on them. And so you can see some of the most uh, respected peer reviewed articles showing the link between marijuana and uh, a host of mental illnesses. Um, so go there. And um, if you go to the uh, the products um, menu item, the story options, there's um, the, we have an audio book and we have the paperback book and there's a short film that can be licensed and there's also a play. So let's say wow. at school want to perform the play. We've got a script for it, um, two versions. So a short one that's, you know, runs about 18 minutes and a long one that runs 75 minutes. And um, two years ago, we had a wonderful staged reading of A Night in Jail here in, in Los Angeles. And I mean, we had a full house and there were people gasped, people laughed. And at the end, we had a standing ovation. It was it was wonderful, wonderful. And it's, it's, um, it's an intense story. I love it. And I'm, I'm really grateful my brother helped me with it. And he said, when we had the, the stage reading that night, my, my brother Kirk said that it was the happiest day of his life. And so that was really rewarding. Wow. And, and then, I don't know, Larry, do we have any of that audio book? I don't know whether I sent it to you or not. If we do, maybe we can queue up a minute or right. And there was also a video that you sent us. How do people get that video? Is that is that accessible? Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Where is that? If you go to um, a nightingale.com and then there are um there I Oh, it's the improvisational page. So it's very similar to what you do with drug story theater. Like we have some ideas for um for how to do um, an improv based on, you know, uh, today's marijuana and get kids on their feet and talking and engaged. So I sent you a video of, of some actors doing improvisational uh, exercises. And then after the improvisational exercises, we had, um, I just thought we would talk about the acting, you know, and sort of have a debriefing and like, oh, how'd you feel? what do you think? And instead of talking about the acting exercises, these kids wanted to talk about the effects of growing up in a world where this is a normal drug, where this is a healthy drug, where everybody is using it openly. And I, I was kind of taken aback by that. Um, and so we just let the conversation happen. And that's also on the website. It's very interesting to it, It's terrific. And, and, it's, and, and talking about how the, uh, the vapes were you know, are, are basically strawberry and lemon and, and flavored. So yeah. you don't even think about it. I mean, that, yeah. that gets yeah. into the whole thing of edibles. You, are you talking about edibles as well and the targeting audience of edibles? Oh, it's, it's, I mean, this has got to change. This, this is something that the law has got to get in front of. I mean, we stopped selling those, um, those bubblegum cigarettes. Remember those? Yeah. I loved those things and <laughs> normalized cigarettes to kids. And so those are gone now. You know, we should not be selling THC edibles in a package that looks exactly like something a kid would eat. 
there was a study released from Ottawa that there had like an 800% rise in pediatric visits to emergency rooms because of mostly these candies. And the, the ages was zero to nine. Wow. So imagine what these, then they go to the emergency room. Some of them had to be intubated. I mean, this is, we have really got to um, get a hold of this kid's menu of marijuana products. If, if you must have an edible, make it look like um, a little piece of coal. And I'm, I'm quoting a friend of mine who works for an organization in Colorado called One Chance to Grow Up. And she said, there is no reason to make something look like a candy except to market it to children. But this is exactly what the industry needs because they don't want just people with cancer smoking a little joint every now and again. No, they need users. They need people using on a regular basis and they need them using for the rest of their lives. And so to do that, they have to addict people as soon as possible. And under the age of 18, as you know, Dr. Schwann, that's when the brain is most vulnerable to addiction. And so they are after our kids. We've got to put a stop to that. I mean, I'm, I'm just uh, shocked. And so, and if an adult then says, well, the only way that I can take it is I don't want to smoke it because it's bad for my lungs. It's bad for my heart. Yes, it is. THC is. And, um, but even the edibles are still, um, <clears throat> this THC, no matter how you ingest it has consequences for the heart. And so, um, but just make it not attractive to kids. How about it comes in a little prescription bottle and then you have to, you know, the yeah. kids <laughs> needs to go. It is, it is remarkable. And, and, you know, folks who've seen drug street theater, you know, the numbers, right? If you start using drugs or alcohol after the age of 21, you start smoking weed after the age of 21, one out of 25 people at risk for lifelong addiction. One out of 25, you start using before the age of 18, that number goes from one in 25 to one in four. One in four kids are at risk for lifelong addiction just because the way their brains are developing. Addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. This is just the way the brain is. And that's the other part of it is once, once you're using and if you are addicted, there's such a stigma about coming to get help. You're judged. You know, what's wrong with you? You're weak. You're, you're, it's your fault. You were using. We have to be able to break that barrier as well. Because if you need help, come and get it. Come out of the well, shower to get some help. If I could just interject something about stigma. I think it's okay to stigmatize the substance, but yeah. not the user. Just exactly. like you do with tobacco. We have successfully flipped that script. And right now we're on the other side with marijuana. It's cool. It's normal. It's okay. And if you say anything about about it, guess who's stigmatized? I'm stigmatized. Because I say, oh, you know, there's, there are mental health effects. Did you know that it it worsens COVID? Did you know it's a toxin and it's causes cancer? Did you, and they go, what, who are you? shut up and they call me names you know and it's like excuse me you don't want to know about the side effects and Mm -hmm. and so the stigma comes to the people in prevention 
And I'm not the one that said it. Our Surgeon General said it. The American Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Sciences said it. Not me. I'm telling you about my personal experience that confirms what they said. And so it's an interesting stigma thing right now. And so let's stigmatize the, um, the drug and let's have empathy for the human who fell prey. Great, yeah. So we're we're coming to the end of the show. As we do at the end, we talk about the two truths of the I am. Remember, the I am is saying we're all doing the best we can, influenced by the four domains of your home, the social domain, the biological, and the I see. How I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because the domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. So Heidi, what small change can you recommend to our listeners regarding this topic? Like the way we talk about preventing heart disease and preventing cancer, we should talk about that with mental illness as well. Are there things that we can do to promote a healthy brain, prevent mental illness? And there are. There are some things. Now, will every mental illness be prevented? No, absolutely not. But let's stack the deck in our favor. And so um, how do we have a healthy brain? We wear helmets when we're toddlers. We put on seatbelts so we don't bang our head against the glass if we get hit. And we should protect our brains chemically as well. Mm-hmm. Let's not use a substance that can do damage that could be irreversible. And you can't go back on that. And so I want to bring awareness of that to youth to protect their brains. And as you say, don't give it away. Don't don't give it to the industry. You need that brain, and it needs to form all by itself until the mid twenties. And then, if you must do whatever it is, you know, then, like you said, there are there are less consequences. Yeah. And I think you may have already answered the second truth. Um, you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Heidi Swan, what kind of influence do you want to be? I got into this because I want to prevent more homelessness. How do we prevent homelessness? We prevent addiction. We prevent mental illness. How do we prevent mental illness and addiction? One of the things is, like you said, don't use substances before the age of 25. Any of them. There is no safe drug. Heidi, thank you so much. Folks, A Night in Jail. You can get it on Amazon, anightinjail.com. Go to the website. It's really, really good. Great read. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you. Thanks, Larry. We'll see you next week. Tom, see you next week. Stretch the